Hi, I'm Danny Elfman. This is Shirley Manson. This is Debbie Harry. This is Chris Steiner Blondie. This is Roland Orzabal from Tears for Fears. This is Billy Idol. This is Alex Ebert, a.k.a. Edward Sharp, giving the story behind the song. Hi, this is Peter Chotty, host of the story behind the song. Each month I speak to some of music's biggest artists to get the inside stories behind their most lasting and iconic songs. Join me for new episodes on the third Monday of every month on the story behind the song from the Consequence Podcast Network, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ... How do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Flying Raccoon formed in Mississippi in the early 2010s. But it wasn't until 2016 that their lineup solidified to basically what it looks like now. They released their first LP, Makes a Friend, in 2016. Their second album, Afterglow, was self-released in 2021, and it got them a lot of attention within the ska scene. On November 3rd, they are releasing their third full-length, Moonflower, with Bad Time Records. The group have always been all over the map stylistically, blending ska with jazz, metal, and indie rock. But this record goes even further out there. To discuss this excellent new album, we talk with guitarist, multi-instrumentalist Andrew Heaton and vocalist, melodica player Jessica Jeanson. I was actually really surprised when Andrew hit us up with the new record, Moonflower. Mm-hmm. I had no idea there was going to be a new Flying Raccoon Suit record, and then I was stoked to have the whole thing to listen to, and it was great. Oh yeah, so good. My biggest uh, thing that I noticed about it was... There, I felt like there was a variety of songs. Some of the songs are longer and heavier. Some of the songs are shorter, faster. I like that. It makes for a great album listening experience. Yeah. So I always like to see a, a band uh, play with their sound and uh, get something new happening. I hear that you're the greatest ska band in Mississippi. That is true. We're also the worst ska band in Mississippi. We wear both hats. Wow. <laughs> Wait, who said you were the worst ska band? Well, by default, you know. Right. I mean, okay. So, so when we started, there was one other ska band in Mississippi, and I have never heard of a third ska band coming from the state. So, Stereo Hype kind of helped us get started. And at, after they stopped, it's been just us. And yeah, we would love for another ska band to be here or in Alabama or, you know. Yeah, like, please, please join us. We're lonely. <laughs> What was the stereo hype like? They they were good. Very uh, they weren't real big fishy, but they were uh, guitar driven in that way. So a lot of guitar solos and stuff. Um, they were really nice because uh, when we got started, obviously we were kind of a, a shitty teenage garage band, and we've gotten a lot better, obviously. But they were the kind of band you need for younger bands coming up in the scene because they would let us open their shows back when. VFW shows and all ages shows were a thing here. Um, and it's gotten progressively more difficult over time because I, uh, when we started, there were two all ages venues we could play at. And 
those don't exist anymore. So I don't even know nowadays if you were a high school band starting up where you would get your foot in the door or like you can't play any of these bars or anything until you're 21. And by that time, a lot of people have moved away or, you know, been disillusioned with getting no shows. So they haven't done anything. So there's there's another article uh, was written by Alt Press that listed you as uh, their best rising pop punk band in Mississippi. It was a <laughs> every state was represented, and you were the Mississippi entry entry. That that's also true because there not only are there no ska bands, there's no punk bands here. Um, no, there, there's not a lot going on. Like half of us do the gig musician thing where you play, you know, four hour sets at these clubs and bars and restaurants every week uh, to kind of pay the bills. But if it's original music coming out of this area, it's either blues rock or in the alternative world of music, it's just like heavy metal, like adjective, uh, adjective metal or blank core, like all these super heavy genres. And we tend to get made fun of, <laughs> even though we, we do lean heavy sometimes uh, whenever we do interact with, those kinds of bands. Yeah, I think definitely there there's more there's there are more metal bands here in Mississippi than any other kind, I think, now. Yeah, it's all heavy stuff. And when we were starting, we were playing with other bands and it was always, you know, death metal and like crab core bands and stuff like that. And we would play and people would be confused and not really know what to do. So I remember some shows early on, like people were still, you know, crowd killing to us like a very young ska band with too many horns. And there was remember broken noses and glasses and all sorts of stuff, just because people didn't really know what to do. I think though, the one good thing about your situation is that people who are making lists about <laughs> States, you know, the different bands of different States, you're a shoe in for Mrs. Yep. The Mississippi entry. Curly was actually talking about that when this last list came out because he was saying if for nothing else will always be remembered as the Mississippi band on these lists because even oh, if yeah. the <laughs> if the band ends one day somebody's searching for some ska band that used to exist in Mississippi it's it's probably going to be us. Then I'll, he, I'll I'll take it if that's our legacy I'll I'll take it. <laughs> I like it. Even Stereohype, which is uh you know they did their share of touring and everything I think they existed just before the sort of social media explosion where they would have had their name in a bunch of places. So right, right before the MySpace era ended. Mm. Yeah, yeah. That's about when they were hitting. <laughs> so, so they've just lost to the sands of time. Yeah. I, I like bringing them up whenever I can, just because it's, you know, it's part of the Southern sky culture that gets sort of forgot about. Last year we had uh, Andrew, you joined uh, Omnigon on tour for the West coast tour. And it was your first time on the West coast, right? Yeah. That was a lot of fun. One thing that I just feel like is a crime against humanity is that you're, you're in your first time in California and Omnigun keeps bringing you to Del Taco instead of actual taquerias. (laughs) (laughs) We didn't take him to Del Taco. We took him to Taco Bell. Okay. Oh, much better. (laughs) (laughs) You got to get your crappy Mexican food, right? Yeah. Cause you can't get that in Mississippi. (laughs) The tour comfort food. Yeah. Yeah. It's the things we don't have here. I think were surprising to the Omnigon crew because they brought me to like a Whole Foods, but they were just so surprised. I'm just like, oh, you can make your own salads and stuff. This is cool. They're like, you don't, you don't have this. What type of salad did you make? Oh, it was, uh, I, I don't think it was a 
watermelon pepperoni salad because uh, <laughs> I just went down the line and I put everything that looked good into Wait this box. Watermelon and pepperoni? He messed up. He he had one of those boxes from Whole Foods and he started to put, he was like, oh, what do I like here? Oh, watermelon. That looks good. <laughs> what else looks good? Oh, pepperoni. That looks good. And then he put those in together and he's like, damn, fucked up. <laughs> yeah. I, I kept piling stuff. There was like sunflower seeds and I got out to the table and I, I sat down with uh, Brent and Adam. I was just like, wow, I made a fucked up looking salad, guys. <laughs> Whenever I go over to Andy's house, I mean, he's like tearing down a whole like jar of pepper like pepperoncinis <laughs> <laughs> yeah the snacks uh it's like yeah pickled okra these whole little peppers stuff like that <laughs> they're good well yeah. next time you come to california we, we gotta we gotta introduce you to some better food that's all i'm saying what what would be your recommended spot aaron well it's not a specific spot but you just go taqueria to taqueria and adam is a taqueria lover which is i which makes this prime even greater <laughs> i mean taco bell when you're just touring with a bunch of dudes it's just so much easier it's like right yeah. there off the freeway exit yeah i did it i did it one at one exit there was a taco truck and i got a burrito and everybody else went to taco bell <laughs> oh wow we did eat at that one place what was the place that had like the re- really specific sauce that like you and brent were like we gotta go here Oh, Lavix. Okay, so you did go to Lavix. Okay, that's I had at Lavix today. What, what were you doing in San Jose? I wasn't in San Jose. They have a Lavix in Hayward. Oh, wow, I didn't I know that. Hayward. Oh, what were you doing in Hayward? Oh, it's because you have school there. Going to school. Oh, yeah. Interesting. This is great content. Okay, enough of the interview with me. <laughs> okay, I got a I got a uh, question for Jessica. I hear that you lost your Garfield book at the SPI Fest. Well, it, it wasn't my garfield book it was uh it was given to me by um a friend from from young costello and i i left it i just left it and i cried does garfield mean a lot to you garfield does mean a lot to me uh yeah i can't explain it but it's like a nostalgic like childhood thing you know and now that's like linked to ska you know garfield's like Mm -hmm. ska's mascot now it kind of just it's fitting i don't know (laughs) by the time this airs i think the third video will be out which garfield is in (laughs) <laughs> oh, excellent! What is uh, what's Garfield doing in the video? Uh, he, he's kind of like uh, I guess, waking up. Yeah. <laughs> from a from a lasagna dream, I. <laughs> it's just it's on Jessica's clothes and maybe maybe your pillowcase, if I remember right. Yeah, in a lot more places you can't see. <laughs> yeah. Okay. How much Garfield paraphernalia do you have, Jessica? You say paraphernalia as if it's an illegal thing. <laughs> <laughs> it could be any day. I didn't mean for it to sound that way. I have a lot. I have a lot of. Um, I could weigh it out for you if you'd like. Well, just from where you're sitting, how much Garfield stuff can you see? One, two, three. Um, right, right off the top, seven. <laughs> seven. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. People will bring her drawings of uh, Garfield to shows. I think based on a tweet or something you made. I don't remember. My my favorite one, I don't know who the person was who gave it to me, but this was a person who had a, a ponytail at a, a festival or something. I don't remember, but it was Jerry Garcia. It was literally Jerry Garcia's face with Garfield's body and like a, he's holding a, a bong. And it was it's my favorite drawing ever. <laughs> okay, I want to talk about your new the first video you did for Swan Song. Now, yeah, Jessica, was this this was kind of your concept? 
in, through the brainstorming session? Yeah. Uh, yeah. This was your old house? I want to I learn a little about the house that's being demolished. All right. So the house, it's just a... Uh, it's a house on my mom's and stepdad's property. Um, their house is, is like from 1940, but the house behind that is from like 1920. And um, they had a lot of tenants in it that kind of like stripped away everything out of it after a while. Now it was just like a shell of a house. So I was moving and I needed somewhere to put all my stuff. And so I u- I had to use that house as storage, but they turned off the electricity and everything and all my stuff got ruined. And um so we just decided to go in there and just ruin it some more, <laughs> like just rid of all the stuff I was holding on to for no reason, you know, and, um, we, you know, use that as like a cathartic way to like get the message across of the song, I guess. Yeah, it's great. It's a great video. It looks weird too, because you guys filmed it with the song playing at like one and a half times fast, right. Or something like that. Yeah. And we, we did one run through and, uh, we destroyed a lot of stuff in the process that I, I wish we could have got in the second take that, that the second take was the one that we ended up using actually, which was actually, you know, that worked out flawlessly. I don't know how that happened, but um, yeah, this house, it, it was, it's full of, it was full of stuff that I had since I was like a, a baby. I mean, literally like we dropped a keyboard that was given to me for like my 14th birthday stuff, that, you know, yeah, and during that first run through, I remember one thing Clay was bummed about specifically is there was a small guitar and all the stuff had been water damaged over time and kind of ruined, but he shattered it on the wall and it exploded into a big cloud in kind of a cool way. And he was a bummed that one didn't make it into the second uh, take. Yeah, Clay's always complaining about something. <laughs> Shout out Clay. <laughs> Shout out Clay. My favorite part is, uh, I don't I don't know which the mem- which member it was, I can't remember, but one guy like falls through some drywall and then Andrew, you come out like, and you rip a solo. Yeah. I'm glad we got that uh, first try because that would have been real, real frustrating to have to reset. Um, the, we had two extra people in the video, uh, Derek and Ryan, who were in an old metalcore band that our drummer Curly fronted on uh, lead guitar and vocals. So we, we like slipping them into things whenever we can, uh, just as kind of a nod to the scene and, you know, his bandmates. So the guy who uh, plowed through the drywall played uh, Glockenspiel on our album, Flying Raccoon Suit Makes a Friend. And uh, the other guy, Derek, he he shot the third video for uh, for Sunflower. How meticulously did you rehearse this uh, for this video before you sh- filmed it? Well, we I would say, OK, we had like a general concept. Uh, Chris kind of told us like you know we didn't really have much time and it was getting you know hotter in the day and all that and um i guess okay we just kind of like we're like all right you over here you over here you over here just chaos to start beating shit just throw shit out the window do whatever you can you know and so it, he was just like all right action so he, you know i just followed him with the camera and our eyes later and we had just like chaotic thing that we loved yeah, I think we probably did three or four run-throughs without destroying stuff just to get the pacing right because yeah. it it was much quicker with the song sped up. So we were probably in there for like two minutes or less. And there was other difficulties. Like I had brought in a generator uh, with the intentions of trying to blast the song at us from outside so that we could play to it. That one didn't work. Uh, her mom and stepdad had a second generator that we also couldn't get to work. 
so we settled with uh chris walking with his phone playing the sped up version of the song and then with one hand and then with the other hand filming there's a video by a band called no effects video for darby crashing her party that uh has a similar concept are you familiar with this video i've heard of them a little (laughs) yeah so so what happened there is um uh, and no shade to to Chris or anything at all in in any of this, so I don't want it to come off that way. But um, he sent a rough draft of the video uh, to us, and then he says on accident he had included uh, Fat Mike in it because I guess the two F names were close in his address book or something. Just to be clear, uh, Chris works for Fat Mike, so he didn't just randomly email Fat Mike, right? For for people listening, yeah. It, yeah, it, it was in his address book. Chris has shot videos for, you know, Fishbone and Catbite and Half Past Two and tons of people. I mean, he, I can understand, you know, you accidentally hit the F and, you know, I get it. <laughs> yeah, but Fat Mike got the video and then responded back. Uh, hey, this is a good idea. Let's let's do this for our video. No, what the exact email said was, hey, great video. I hate when messages end abruptly like. That's right. Yeah, Fat Mike wrote that back. Yeah, it was something like that. It was something ridiculous like that. Made me laugh really hard. Yeah, and, and Chris hit us up later uh, to break the news. He was like, "Hey, Fat Mike wants to to use this idea for the video." And I understand from his point of view, like he's trying to make his living at it, so he went along with it. And then, um, he felt bad, so he snuck our name into the NoFX video. Like we didn't ask him to do that, but he he kind of did that. And, uh, yeah, we, we were mostly worried, like now that we've seen both videos, we know they look different enough that hopefully people wouldn't connect it. But at the time, all we knew was our video was shot last December. So like way before the no FX one. And we were worried that since the no FX video was shot after and would come out before our video did that, it would look like we were ripping them off and we were worried people would take it that way. Yeah, it was just a real confusing like series of events for me. I was like trying to wrap my head around how like how everything happened. I don't know. Yeah, and then after the no effects video came out, which is in August, um, a lot of people in the scene were like tagging us and stuff and like telling us to go watch this video and they're like, Hey, you're gonna be excited when you see this. And we tried not to comment on anything because like we don't want to explain why our name is in there and like you know, possibly ruin our announce or like give away the surprise or anything. And yeah, I had a few people message me that day saying like, Hey, do you know, this is, Hey, why is this here? <laughs> With no context, it seems completely bonkers that flying raccoon suit is just in that video. Like why on earth is that there? Like it makes no sense without understanding the story behind it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. They're such a huge band. And yeah, people, after we didn't respond to stuff, I think people were worried that we would miss it. So they did start DMing us the video and being like, <laughs> hey, you you, you got to check this out. You're, you're really going to want to see it and stuff. And yeah, it was just we didn't want to say like, oh, yeah, it's in there because we're announcing an album in uh, two months or whatever. I was just like, oh, yeah, that's wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So it's such a confusing situation. And looking back, just a wild thing that we can say happened so fat mike never asked you for permission right he never said can you ask the band if i could do this he just said this is great let's go yeah that's that's our understanding right (laughs) also i don't know if he actually liked our song or anything i just know he saw the video like the video 
Yeah, I guess he liked the concept for the video or Jessica's concept. Yeah. Well, okay. So this is the first um, song video that you've released for the new record, Moonflower, which um, by the time this is released, I think will have just been released as well. You guys are releasing this record with Bad Time Records, which is really cool. Yeah, we're super excited. Yeah. Your prior record, Afterglow, was self-released, and then uh, SPI did the cassette release. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. We yeah we uh, self-released and did the whole Kickstarter thing. And looking back, I think maybe that was about the time SPI was starting. Yeah, it was about the exact same time. Yeah, because yeah, like yeah. after it had been out for a year or so uh we saw that chris was putting out tapes for like joystick and folks and hit him up and yeah he was super down and did a run of tapes for us and it's actually yeah we did the the scott Bank international podcast and we were releasing afterglow and he was talking about releasing or, or starting a label yeah it was probably around the same time yeah i remember that because yeah we we sent afterglow to to a ton of people and i think yeah if sbi was doing vinyl around then then we would have probably sent it there too but oh absolutely we, we cast a wide net for that one, just blasting it to everybody. Hey, everybody. It's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian. And we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Yeah, this this new record, really good. Really good album. I liked Afterglow, but this album is definitely a few steps above Afterglow. I want to talk about some of the, some of this record with you. Um, I know Afterglow was like, Curly recorded it, right? Yeah. Did Curly record this one too, or did you guys work with some other people and it's recording? Uh, this was done all the exact same way as Afterglow. So yeah, Curly recorded everything and we uh, send it to somebody else for mastering. And it's the same guy we sent it to for Afterglow, uh, James Witten, which uh, it, now we Curly has mastered some side stuff that we've done since then, like little covers we put out. And we think like he definitely could do it, but we all agree like a second set of ears on it is kind of good. Yeah, for sure. Especially for something like mastering, which is really an undervalued aspect of the recording process. He's explained it to me so many times, and I still can't tell you what what it really was. If you ask him to explain it, he's music be louder. Yeah, music be louder. I couldn't explain it either, but I do know that it's like it makes it sound so much better. That's all I understand about it, and so I accept that as a fact, <laughs> and that it's important. So, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Now, this is true for the band before before this record, but I think I feel like this record really showcases the fact that the horns in Flying Raccoon Suit are a very critically important aspect of the band. I would say in particular, it's interesting because I feel like a lot of the new bands, a lot of the bad time bands, you know, some of them have horns, some of them don't, but I don't feel like they're as horn driven maybe as Ska was in the 90s. You know, there's plenty of bands like Catbite that are not even a horn band at all. But for you guys, I feel like the horns are very, very important and a critical part of your sound. Thanks. Uh, I, th I think so, too. I, I definitely feel like with this group of people, like it wouldn't be flying raccoon suit if we were missing one of them. Like, obviously, for this album, the one change is we now have Clay on bass instead of Josh, our original bassist. But the uh, yeah, the horns are great friends. And also me and uh, Brandon and Nevin have been cutting our teeth doing the southern brass band thing and 
the cover band thing and the jazz thing for most of a decade together. So we're, we're all really familiar with each other's writing tendencies and enjoy hanging out together. And they have a really good mind for when to lay back and not overtake the vocals and when to have a moment where you can really just show somebody what you can do. So like witches streak is a good example where in the middle, we wanted to do our, uh, little blue meanies sort of uh insane prog moment and then kind of die back into a softer groove but yeah they have a good mind for when to sit back and when to stand out it, it impresses me how brandon and nevin specifically and well guillermo and brandon and nevin they uh they're really good at storytelling like with the horns you know it's like they it it's almost like they can come up with horn lines that are are I guess like portraying what the song's saying, like it, like I think in hurricane, you know, it's, it, it really like that swirling, like hurricane, like build up. It, it sounds like, you know, like the build up in your head, like you're trying to portray in the song. Yeah. I think one of the things that really impresses me about the horns, and I'm sure this is the jazz influence coming through is that you often don't have like unison horn parts. Like there is intricate parts within the horn section that are playing off of each other. And it gives it a dimension and it sounds really cool when it's like it, it cuts to the horns and the horns are not just doing a single solid melody, but like a whole part, like a whole two or three part to themselves. Thanks. Yeah, I uh, I think a lot of the horn writing is it's about half me and about half Brandon. And then Nevin and Guillermo have also added some parts. So it's, it's really important for us that um, everybody has written something on the album and we like that that comes through and the way Brandon's mind works, he's very new to ska, like basically since joining the band. So the way he writes isn't, I feel like typically what you would write in ska. So I feel like the differences in the lines that I write versus the lines that he writes are pretty noticeable because he'll come up with like harmonic choices, like putting notes that are a whole step apart uh, together for a chord that when you sit down and like look at it theory wise, it's like, okay, this makes sense, but I would never think to stack like a B flat on an A flat or something like that without really thinking about it. Can you elaborate a little bit more on the, uh, you, you said that it was you and I can't remember who else were, had this sort of jazz, you know, performance background over the last decade. Could you kind of elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah. So me, Brandon and Nevin are about half the band uh, because Curly would fill in too, but a lot of us pay the bills playing music. And, or, you know, locally, that's not original music. It's, uh, you know, you're playing four hour shows at clubs and bars and venues. We do the brass band thing a whole lot. So we've played in a group, uh, Blackwater Brass, for most of a decade where, you know, our bread and butter is being basically the only brass band here on the Mississippi coast, because while brass band music is huge in New Orleans, it's really a Gulf Coast thing that sort of stretches from New Orleans into the Florida panhandle. But most of the bands that do that kind of stuff don't typically leave New Orleans. So we were able to carve our niche out doing that. And because of that, like we would play in that band, you know, two to three days a week around holidays, even more like Mardi Gras for us is, you know, 12 gigs in four days or something ridiculous like that. And me busting my lip and bleeding into my tuba and stuff like that. But it's, you know, that's our nest egg. And because of that, we got really good at improvising off one another and knowing when to be complicated when to sit back when to make something a sing-along uh stuff like that and that's kind of why we wanted to have the the intro to the album be reminiscent of like a southern brass band kind of dirge because 
Yeah. We feel like that's something we can draw from kind of in a genuine way, not just in a yeah. let's try this. Cause a lot of times you'll have a, a rock artist, try their jazz song or like a hip hop artist, try their pop punk song. And maybe it comes across like a little, little strange, a little disingenuous or something, but all the things like metal and jazz and stuff and indie rock we pull from is just stuff we've been doing for all our lives. So you play in these bands, are you playing this band all up and up, up along the coast or just in your town or how, how does this work? Cause like you said, this actually pays the bills. It's not like, you know, a lot of bands pay, play gigs and it doesn't really pay much, but this is like actual, you get actual money from this because it's real work. Yeah. It's, it's two different worlds, like the, the original music thing. And then the gig band thing, because you'll hear people, you know, doing their gigs that really pay money, like stop the presses, you know, they have their, their other band as a wedding band where, you know, they go get that paycheck and it's that sort of thing. We stay primarily in the Southeast, but it is, it's very backwards to think about because we're used to tour routing and when do you hit which city and when do you push this album or new merch? But ours is like, you could play in some of the same cities like every weekend and there's a demand for it. Some bar or venue or club is going to pay you to, show up and play for four hours and then like head back home. But it's also very isolating in a way because there's no community around it. You're not really playing with other bands. You're not really, no one's especially hyping you up except for the fans. Like you're not really hyping other bands up. It's a weird singular thing. But yeah, weddings, I mean, the the less fun it is, typically the more money you'll make because like weddings and corporate <laughs> events will pay a lot. <laughs> sure. That's, that's a, yeah, that's the diagram. Well, how many instruments do you play, Andrew? Uh, some somewhere over a dozen. Can you name them? Yeah, let me let me look around. Actually, in my living room, so I can do all the uh, the brass instruments. Like tuba is my primary, but I do trombone with a lot of people. I've recorded trumpet. I did trumpet on a, a Omnigon song for Adam. Uh, I uh, I do all the. My dad was a bluegrass musician, so all those things were laying around when I was growing up. So I play you know, banjo and dobro, uh, guitar, uh, electric and upright bass. Um, on this album, I, I do some, some theremin, uh, I can do, a I could do keys and melodica in a very, uh, remedial way, not, not in a professional way by any means, but I could just like do a melody or something, but yeah, any stringed or brass instruments. And, and I've done drums in bands in the past. I want to go back to the Omnigon tour for a second, because on that tour, Adam brought you out initially to play trombone, right? Yeah. And then, okay, then Barry got COVID a few shows in, and then you were switched over to bass. That's right. And you did fine. And the crazy thing about that was he learned the bass parts in basically one playthrough of the set in the back of the van on the way to the San Jose show. Wow. So that was uh, also first, like, I'm so thankful that uh, Adam and them like brought me out to the West Coast because that was my it's a big scene for ska and all this stuff. And I've never seen that area. And also I'm big into nature and getting to like see deserts and stuff was exciting, but <laughs> yeah. One of, one of our favorite things having you out with us was that everything was like Pokemon go for you. You had like this app that was like a science app. Yeah. This iNaturalist <laughs> app. Yeah. And he was using this iNaturalist to just like tag all these like shrubs and bushes. And we would like stop at like a gas station he like, did that in my backyard the other day. Yeah, how'd it go, Andrew? He's like, oh, I just I just tagged like three different things. Yeah, it's. I remember Brent being uh, I my one request because there were some long drives. I was like, can we just see the desert at some point? And he's like, I guess, but I mean, why? 
<laughs> <laughs> so then, okay. So then the other thing that happened on that tour was you would often, I would just look on stage during Bucko nine set or mustard plug set. And there you were playing trombone. Like, yeah, they were so nice and, and welcoming about that. But it's like, I thought it was really cool because it's like, Oh, here's a person that is wants to play music as much as possible. And it's just having so much fun doing it. Yeah. And I just kind of like brought a smile to my face, you know, because you know, that's not always the case with people that play music all the time. It's not always like, I want to play as much as possible because it brings me joy. Thank you. That, that means a lot. I mean, that whole like tour package was so welcoming. And also to go back to something that was pretty embarrassing for me, because I did learn bass uh, in one run through in the van. And every night after the first night was great. But that first night, I made some mistakes that were like, they were really bugging me. And my favorite band of all time, uh, or my favorite ska band, MU30. Uh, Dan P is a genius, like love almost all of his projects. Uh, looking out into the crowd, you know, as I'm fucking up these bass lines, I see Dan P. Uh, I learned Mike Park is like outside on the street. I think Kevin Higuchi was there. And I'm just like, mm. God, what, what a night to fuck up these lines. But they were all completely, completely, yeah. <laughs> of all those musicians, only Dan watched us. <laughs> right because you, you 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 sang a uh, favorite show like a, a, some lines of that to him and that's when i noticed of course yeah i love dan also like you played great considering no practice one run through in the back of the van oh yeah it was it was almost there was good. only one song that i feel like noticeably you did something different and it wasn't like you stopped playing or played wrong notes you just played a different thing yeah so it it, it was minor it was probably stuff that only bugged me but it was just like it was that set for sure and yeah playing with mustard plug and the buck 09 guys was like they were so welcoming mustard plug especially i've been a fan of for a long time buck 09 i've i had never seen because i i don't know if they really leave the west coast but that was my first time seeing them. Yeah, I don't think they I don't think they've left the West Coast really since the last tour that Link 80 did with them uh in like the late 90s early 2000s when their bass player uh fell severely ill. Oh wow. Uh like right before a show. Okay. So I think that they're a little gun shy of that. They might have done a couple tours, but I think that was the end of their like national touring. Well, that makes sense. And Mustard Plug, I was able to see in the South, and we don't get a lot of sky here. So anytime a band comes through, it is it's extra appreciated because I can count the quote unquote like big name ska bands that have been to this little area probably on one hand in the past few years. Mm-hmm. And then at Supernova, did you you played on Mustard Plug's whole set? Yeah, they uh, two bands dropped out of supernova last minute for visa issues one being uh the duelers that they were called to be last minute replacement for and jim couldn't go uh so they asked me with about a week's notice and uh they sent me their album release set list which is longer than the normal set list so i ended up learning more songs than i needed uh but every day when i got home i was running you know 20 mustard plug songs or so until until supernova came up Right. So, uh, back to you, back to your record Moonflower. Um, I really liked the, how, how diverse the, the, ins- the influences are in this record or just the sections that you go into. Like we talked a little bit about the metal aspect. Like there's like these lengthy metal sections or do metal sections 
Can you talk about that a little bit? Just your approach to songwriting and, and kind of where these songs can go. Yeah. So I'm, I'm probably primary songwriter, but everybody writes something. So sometimes I'll bring uh, songs to the table that are completely like finished with lyrics and horns, like a uh, pinwheel or take this with you other times. Like, I'll do the music, but uh, Jessica does lyrics like Witch's Streak. Um, or sometimes we'll have the skeleton of a song and Brandon comes over and we flush out the horn parts. But um, so I do most of the skeletons of the songs, but everybody can bring songs to the table. And Brandon, our trumpet player, has brought a couple to the table. He did Don't Wait on the last album and uh, Sunflower on this album. Uh, Curly brought his first song to the table, uh, Long in the Tooth. He, except for the horn part, uh he wrote that whole song and the lyrics were actually me him and jessica writing together which has never happened on a song before the more the merrier in the songwriting process and then you can really hear all the different characteristics of people's styles yeah and i hope it comes off genuinely too because that's that's is all of our backgrounds like curly's the metalhead obviously and jessica and i go way back doing indie rock stuff and the brass band influence but we all love ska you know so it's hopefully in a genuine way and yeah, it's the way me and Jessica collaborate is pretty unusual, I think, because we don't get together as a full band a lot. And yeah, how do you how do you two work together? We we send each other a lot of uh, poetry, and we like work off of each other's words and uh and stuff like that. You know, we'll send each other just just walls of text. We'll pick and and fit things, you know, and and just rework them over and over till we like them. Yeah, Jess will send me like a. Uh, so there's songs like that she'll write completely or I'll write completely, even though she sings the bulk of them. But then there's other Frankenstein songs we get where, um, yeah, she'll send me like free form poetry, almost not to any specific song or music. And then I'll take a line, add one of my lines, one of hers, one of mine to stitch it together into, you know, a song. So Swan's song, for instance, is a good example because like the first line walking on air, but it's getting thin. That was one from, uh, some stuff that Jessica sent me, then the next line is mine. And in the chorus, it's like the first line is Jessica's, the second line is mine. So and it's funny about that because like our brains are, are usually in the same place when it comes to that. It's like our, our lyrics always like flow together. And I, I don't really know how that happened, but uh, I don't know. <laughs> it is great because sometimes it's, I, I mean, I think our lyrics without discussing what a song is about end up in the same ballpark whenever we do that, which is great. It, it leaves a lot to interpretation for sure. And in long shot, something that happened for the first time that I kind of like uh, the, the verse lyrics, like the lyrics I wrote ended up being what she sings and the lyrics she wrote end up being what I sing, which I think, and that's just kind of how we formatted the song to go. But I think that's just a funny thing. That's the first time that's happened. So um, I want to ask Jessica, I read a quote of yours about the band. I want to ask you about it. Okay. We really are just a group of anxious goobers. I like it. This is how you would describe the band members. <laughs> In a nutshell. <laughs> I mean, we are just a bunch of, you know, I mean, yeah, you can you can tell. I mean, we're we're really not anything but a bunch of anxious goobers just, you know, just existing here. I feel like uh some bands, I guess on the road might be a little more serious. I I, I have a lot of fun hanging out with this group of people and we've had times like uh Eric Molina uh, filled in for us at this last tour because we were missing a couple horn players for the Canada portion. And he was, yeah, just like, okay, yeah, you guys are 
a lot more energetic to be around because I'm I'm like Mephiscopheles is just very quiet and serious and stuff like that. Okay, so while we're on the topic, what what happened with Eric getting stranded in Canada? Oh man, every tour there's something, but that that was we we were panicking because we we knew our trumpet player couldn't go to Canada and our, our alto player has daddy duty so he doesn't do the longer runs uh and we had two fill-ins like one fell through the next fill-in fell through with like less than two weeks notice we searched through the ska groups these discords and eric was the one person that came through that could do it and had a passport but the only stipulation was that he needed to get home to portland for a big gig yeah i think uh yeah los malablados they were or uh, from the that's what it was. Yeah, they're playing with. Was it Escape from the Zoo? Yeah, yeah, that's what I just said. Oh, sorry, I think she cut out. No, <laughs> you're fine. Uh, but yeah, when the exact day he was set to fly out, it was an extremely stressful day because we found out the Canadian airline went on strike that day. Ah. So he was panicking, uh, trying to find a flight. He he found a flight to Portland and was so excited. It, it was like so early in the morning in our hotel room. Most of us were still asleep. And then he, he read closer in his email and he had just bought a ticket to Portland, Maine instead of Portland, Oregon. Yeah. He was like fucking Portland, Maine. I don't need to go to Portland, Maine. Yeah. He, he was, he was so mad and pacing around and the, everybody was trying to get somewhere with the strike. So tickets were like getting to be 2000 bucks and over. And for, almost $2,000. We found him a flight, but he had to have somebody drive him over the border back into New York to get the flight because he couldn't go out of Canada. So the night of our show, uh, we were playing this Canadian band, the filthy radicals was, uh, you know, we were their support going to these different Canadian cities that one of them had a brother who was a truck driver and was able to drive Eric over the border past midnight after the show so he could get to this new york airport and then fly to portland oregon and it was it was a stressful couple days but i think he got there like he made it with like a few minutes <laughs> yeah the promoter like moved them to last or something and all this stuff happened his flights were getting delayed and yeah it was it was a lot we did the the gofundme for that and almost recouped like all of those expenses Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Let's say, so Jessica... uh could be wrong, but I swear you one time you tweeted that your secret ambition was to do cartoon voices. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I probably could have a long time ago if I'd taken the initiative and, and actually, you know, taken the steps. But um, that is something I do want to do. And I, I, I do want to take it seriously in the next few years. So be looking out for that, I guess, one day. <laughs> All right. Are you ready for an audition now? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Your character is. A squirrel who has a best friend that is a rhino. <laughs> okay, do the squirrel's voice. 
Go. Okay. Like, uh, like you want me to like speak English or like, like the squirrel voice? Yeah. Your, your, li- your line is, come on, Harold, we've got to go to the store. Okay. So you, okay. A squirrel talking to a rhino. Okay. And action. It, what was it? Come on. Who now? Come on, Harold. <laughs> we've got to go to the store. Okay. So a squirrel, a squirrel talking. <clears throat> come on, Harold. We got to go to the store. <laughs> Hired. Hired. Done. Squirrel voice. Is that squirrel enough? Yes. That's perfect. Oh, wait, Jessica, Jessica do your do your Bart Simpson. <laughs> Eat my shorts. <laughs> <laughs> I can also do Lois Griffin. No, Lois Griffin is probably my, my best one, but I don't want to do it right now because I am so nervous. <laughs> okay, maybe we can get it later. We'll get that one behind the curtain. <laughs> okay. All right. So Andrew, um, so in addition to playing with Mustard Plug at Supernova, you also played with uh, Hans Gruber, right? Yeah, I love them. I'm actually wearing a Hans Gruber shirt right now. You usually are. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Is it the yellow one? Now, I heard a fact from uh, somebody that you might actually be the person who's played fill-in horns with them more than any other person. I, I guess that's true, but I think it's only been twice. So maybe nobody else has done a second time. It's only been twice. Initially, they were my uh, reason to go to Supernova because I was looking. I, was, I tweeted like, "Hey, does somebody need a fill-in?" And you know, it would take the ticket cost, and then maybe that flight would be a little easier to stomach. And then the mustard plug thing came later. Oh, I guess I've done some single like songs with them because they have a song that requires a sousaphone, and so I brought a sousaphone to a show they played in Metairie. I did do that. Yeah. So at Supernova, they had every horn player in the building get on stage with them how many horn players do you think that was oh god uh 10 to 15 maybe right yeah that's yeah it was it was insane that was i'm i'm really happy with the reception that they got because they are one of the hardest working bands and i think them and catbite in the scene probably have the most road days like per year i just think that every ska band should uh, do that bit <laughs> all horn explosion yeah yeah you, you have a song it's an easy horn line and anybody who happens to play horns and has their horn with them, just join them for that song. Absolutely. Actually, I think um, so. Fest will have already happened by the time this airs. So um, Folly is doing that for the last song of their cover set. I think it's going to be all horns explosion on uh, Keysby Nights. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Nice. So that one's going to be good. And they're, uh, or I guess I'll, in past tense, they have, we just, Played a version of uh, "Law" by Emuthu Thirty, um, that uh, Jessica sings. Oh yeah? yes, yes, I I did that. Yeah. <laughs> so you were the lead singer for that song. I I was. Oh wow! How did it go? <laughs> How was it? Yeah, I I I guess it was great. It was prolific. I mean, crowd surfing. Like uh, she did a backflip on stage. It was wild. Summon some dolphins. In the room, which she has really good dolphin noises. There's dolphin noises in our music that she does. She's very good. Yeah, they're. I mean, they're buried, but they are in there. Yeah, is this is this a fact? True fact. Yeah, and in in Hive Mind, uh, the very end of that, and the chaos when we're just layering chaos, she she does some dolphin noises. Can we hear dolphin noises? I mean, I I don't know if it'll sound right on here. <laughs> you got this. I believe in you. Uh. You know what? I could just like send you a video later if you would like. <laughs> okay, we'll take the video. Okay. Uh, all right, all right, you got it. Bonus content. Okay, bonus content. 
Okay, so let's get back. Let's get into the history of uh, Flying Raccoon Suit. Okay, so before Afterglow, the band formed in like the early 2010s, right? Yeah, it it was around 2010, but before that, we had also done um, a high school talent show <laughs> is something huh. that probably doesn't resemble any form of Flying Raccoon Suit, but we did use that name. Trogdor. Trogdor, yeah. That was the name of the band? No, it, no, that was uh, one of the songs we did. It was like a couple covers. What were the covers? Uh, Float On by Modest Mouse. Uh, I sang that one. Still my favorite band. Um, Trogdor, which was off this web cartoon, Homestar Runner. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, we did those. It was, I mean, looking back, it was fun. Like, obviously it was bad. We were like high schoolers. But uh, the thing I think is funny in retrospect is we were the only band. The rest was just like, singers so i don't know if we misunderstood that when we signed up uh because everybody else was just like karaoke singing songs well i mean it was called it was called hancock idol yeah so we probably misunderstood that assignment and signed our band (laughs) up and uh yeah they were really annoyed too because it took us like the singers just got up got down like one after the other when it was our turn like we had to set up a bunch of shit and they were they were really annoyed. The guy on the mic was having to kill a lot of time, <laughs> but it wasn't ska because only uh, a max amount of five people could sign up. So not, not everybody. Could play. <laughs> How did you choose who got to be, who got to play in the band that night? Uh, we weren't really uh, a band yet at that point. I think we were just like playing songs in our garage probably. So okay. we just decided like no horns was the easiest thing, I think. So, so Scott was part of this early, early, early version of the band, though. Yeah, we we wrote some songs. Uh, on for better or worse, a lot of those songs disappeared because there's no recording studios or anything down here. Which is, it's a good thing we have Curly, but we were recording with this guy at what used to be a recording studio here in a strip mall called Beach Town Sound, and we had recorded a demo of like five or six songs. And I mean, I don't know what we were paying him, like twenty or twenty five bucks an hour, but I'm sure he didn't take it too seriously because it was high schoolers and it probably didn't sound good. And one day he just kind of moved away with the hard drive and we never heard from him again. Oh my God. <laughs> so those early, for better or worse, that's not in the world. But he was probably like, these kids aren't serious about this. They're not trying to release this or anything. I am like dying to hear this now. Oh, I would be interested to hear it. Like, it would be funny for sure. But yeah, he just took those and dipped. <laughs> right. Maybe we have some super sleuths out there that can track down these lost recordings and when he finds out what happened to this band he's gonna he's gonna put them out there for bootlegs and gonna make some money (laughs) oh that would that would be (laughs) anti-fortunate so this period of time from like 2010 till i don't know let's say let's say the whole that whole decade what was it like being Flying Raccoon Suit, the ska band in Mississippi. And and actually, what specifically, what city in Mississippi are you guys based out of? Because I don't think I even know that. Uh, we we kind of claim Ocean Springs, even though I only, I'm only i the only one living here. But just because that's where we play when we do throw local shows a lot of the time. Uh, we're, we're kind of in a bunch of different coastal cities. Uh, Jess is over in uh, Long Beach, right? Uh, Bay St. Louis. Or Bay St. Louis, Curly's in Long Beach, Brandon's in Gulfport. So just the whole stretch of the Mississippi coast. Yeah, literally from one end to the other. I'm on one end, you're you're on the other end. Yeah, the, the Mississippi coast isn't like super wide. You, I mean, you can drive it in about an hour. So Flying Raccoon Suit has had kind of two lives, sort of like we or the Union did, except I think the second version of this band is 
you know, the real one and the the good one. But the, the early version was a lot of fun. And I mean, I'm not uh, I don't regret anything of it, but it was, you know, it was a group of high schoolers going into college, like, you know, having fun and playing music. I mean, I, I was a fan. I was a huge fan. <laughs> yeah, when did you join the band, Jessica? Oh, 2015. The, yeah, October of 2015. OK. Yeah, we when we started, we did every like trope that you think of with a high school ska band would do like we were bad at promotion i think we were only on facebook we probably played locally too much we uh we had too many horns on stage it looked pretty ridiculous i think there were like 10 of us at the max and because it was just like a bunch of high school friends like people would kind of come and go without much fanfare so like if somebody like we had a girl named lenore who played keyboard and sang a couple songs and we were high schoolers and one day she was just like hey i can't be in the band anymore my dad won't let me come to band practice I'm like okay that's fine so <laughs> people just sort of <laughs> come and go like that and then after college you know people start moving away and uh or going to college in different states so we had some a period of inactivity there and we uh, a lot of the horns moved away so guillermo is our one original horn player uh but we restarted in 2015 when joystick asked us to play a show because there were no other ska bands around for years. It was just us and joystick in this region. And we opened for joystick a lot and still do. But uh, he asked if I would be able to get a group together to play this lineup with days and days and night gods who are an incredible ska hip hop band out of New Zealand that everybody should definitely check out. Yeah. And this had to be, this had to be my first show by the way. Yeah, we, I, me and Jessica have been friends for years, like ha over half our lives now. So I asked if she would fill in on some songs and then we had one fill in horn player. And we were able to to make it work. And then after that, uh, like 2016, we, we got going again. I remember that night y'all asked me to join the band permanently. And I was like, yeah, yeah, of course I will. And like I was, you know, crying and all that stuff. Yeah, this version of the band is like this is flying raccoon suit to me. Like, and I love this group of people and like the chemistry we have writing together is good. It had always been a two vocalist thing. Initially, the vocalists were me and Alan, our trombone player. And the last we ever heard from Alan is uh, we asked, "Hey, do you need a ride to the show tonight?" And he said, "Nope." And we never heard from him again. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's off with that recording studio guy. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it. Like years later, I think somebody saw him locally, like a gas station. So, and since we've seen him at a show, but for several years, like we didn't hear from him, didn't know where he was or if he was alive. It was just like, nope. And then he kind of pieced out from the world for a while. I mean, I, I saw him last year. Yeah. So, so he's around. He's, he's alive. He is alive. <laughs> we can confirm. So, what inspired you in 2010 or the 2010s? to start a ska band in Mississippi? Um, it's probably, I mean, in going with the high school like band tropes, it was probably that a lot of us were in band and played horns uh, because everything else, like guitar, drums, and bass, we were just starting to learn on our own, but horns are the only thing like we had been taught. So that was part of it. And pretty early on, I, I mean, I was a big fan of pop punk bands like some 41 when i was real young i still am some 41's great but i had gotten a warp tour dvd that was them uh mad caddies and suicide machines and seeing mad caddies like playing road rash on that was very eye-opening just like oh shit you can do this with horns like fast punk music 
And then we started, uh, you know, really diving into it from there. And our exposure to ska wasn't a ton because, I mean, the internet, like social media and all that stuff was starting to be a thing, but we would only learn about some of these deeper bands like Slow Gherkin or MU330 or Skank and Pickle whenever we would play with a band that talked about them or happened to cover one of their songs. Uh, and we were... A few, we're a few years younger than a lot of the other Southern ska bands. So there was a certain era of, of ska in the South where bands like Fatter Than Albert and Shut Up Travis, 50-50 Shot, Stereo Hype were playing. And we were getting started as all those bands were coming to an end. So I only just saw Fatter Than Albert for the first time this year. Um, and it was, yeah, it was pretty barren there for a while. But there was another Louisiana band we opened for. And they covered KKK Highway. And then like that allowed me to find MU30 and start diving deep on a lot of these other bands. What was it like playing that those years and that decade before Afterglow? Did audiences understand what you were doing? Did they have a positive reaction to it? Uh, shows were when we had all ages venues, like we actually had some of our biggest shows at those. And it's really sad that they don't exist anymore because I don't know how you know, a, a bad high school garage band would even get their start these days and turn into something more. But the reactions were weird because it's all heavy metal and death metal and crab core and these heavy genres down here. So yeah, people didn't know what to do when we would play. There'd be broken noses and glasses. I remember from one show and other times, like even in the most recent years, uh, you know, we'll get made fun of. Like we, we got booked on a, a charity show for an animal shelter down here. <laughs> And I don't know if the promoter knew that he had added me on Facebook, but after they booked us, he started being like, Scott, who still plays this shit? I'm just like, I'm right. I'm, I'm, I'm right here, man. <laughs> <laughs> Who plays this shit that I booked? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. But uh, now, nowadays the reaction is more positive, but we're, we're one of the only bands that goes and plays elsewhere, like of the Gulf coast, Mississippi scene. So I think other bands see that and are just like, Oh, they're making moves. But really, the move is just playing anywhere besides Mississippi. Like a, a lot of bands don't do that. <laughs> so, do you know what happened? Why Afterglow started to get out, and why bands started to hear about you in, in this ska scene? Was it a surprise to you, or was there is there like a reason behind it? I'm not saying because the album's good. I'm just, but there's a lot of good albums. Like you know, you you are a self released band. You're from Mississippi. Uh, I'm just curious if there's a story behind how you kind of got connected to this, the, the, the wider ska scene. I want to say ska Twitter really, uh, just adopted us. And, um, that's kind of where we, we built our momentum and, um, you know, made a lot of connections with a lot of great people who like boosted us and shared. And, um, yeah, I appreciate that a lot. Uh, yeah, but I, I want to say ska Twitter really did it for us. Yeah. And, and it, I think the pandemic made it a level playing field in a sort of way. Like we all had kind of the same resources because we have a lot of disadvantages being where we're from. So like even a local band, if you're from New Jersey, you've probably gotten to open for some really big bands and stuff like that. Or if you're from, you know, the West coast, but we in our decade plus as a band, we've opened for quote unquote, a bigger name, ska bands uh, twice ever just because nobody comes here. Wait, what were those two bands? So, Mephiscopheles. Mephiscopheles is one. <laughs> uh, that, that one's more recently, like two years ago. And the Toasters, 
in the early 2010s, which both of those shows, I think those bands won't come back. But uh, the, the Toasters, I really bugged a promoter to make it happen. The venue was probably like a little bit too big. And, uh, you know, they got paid and they seemed to enjoy it. But even to this day, it's funny to me because as many shows and people as Buck, Bucket has met in his life, he saw me at um, SPI Fest in Austin, I believe, and remembered me somehow. And then he was playing at this brewery in Hattiesburg called Brewskies that had a big open room and it was kind of like a metal roof sort of thing. But he was like, you booked me in Mississippi, right? Didn't you book us in like an airplane hangar or something like that? (laughs) (laughs) And I was at that show too. I remember. Yeah. but We're disadvantaged in so many ways like that. And like, you know, we're not from an area people would see us if not for the internet. So there's no like support slot opportunities or all this other stuff. But when the uh, playing field is kind of leveled out, like we're good at using some of the internet resources. Like, Curly's great at making videos and he's a Twitch streamer and you know me and Jessica can make goofy content and or do acoustic covers and I mean me and her did the acoustic like play in a cafe for three or four hours thing for a while so we're really good at adapting to that funny thing we actually we called that duo Tanuki (laughs) yeah (laughs) nice fun fact (laughs) but yeah I think just the level playing field helped and we yeah tried our best to promote the hell out of it we saw what bands were doing that worked and tried to craft something after them like okay we see they're kind of releasing a music video each two weeks for their album promo campaign let's see if we can come up with three videos and we'd never done any music videos before we made them all ourselves now your appearance on uh the shape of scott punk to come was that your first interaction with bad time records um no so i actually uh we pitched afterglow to bad time and they said no which is completely fine. Uh, I want to say to his credit, uh, and one of the reasons you know, we pitched to Mike again is he was one of the only people that responded and with some nice words, no less. And Yeah, listen to it. He gave us like compliments more than, than anything else, which I, I appreciated. Hey, everybody. It's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian. And we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Yeah, I I would say also, uh, at the time, I just don't think he also even had the bandwidth. And I remember being over there packing records after your record came out. And him being like, yeah, I, I should have just put out that record. Uh, so, like, I don't think there wasn't a desire there. I think it was more just, you know, he can only play at the beginning. It was like a lot of those early releases were uh, like pre-order. So it was like every time it was like a new record, it was like nail biting. Like, is it going to is it going to break even? Oh, yeah, we under, we understand that, too. We're not. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah no shade to Mike. We honestly, I love how he went about it like he told us no here's why he mentioned the bandwidth thing and he was he did say like i'll try to get you on something in the future though which is how the shape of scott punk to come happened and after mm-hmm. bad time initially said no like it drove home how kind he is and the community went because i cast a wider net after that and uh either heard i pitched a bunch of labels either heard nothing 
or in two cases heard, yeah, I'll give it a listen and then heard nothing. Yeah. I mean, you talk about the internet and uh, during during the pandemic, kind of the level playing field aspect, but I feel like the, there was a lot of attention from Bad Time Records and Bad Time Records bands. And I feel like you were one of the few bands, like you and Half Past Two, where you weren't Bad Time bands, but you were being talked about within the same breath. Like, I didn't feel like there was a whole lot of other bands outside of that that were being sort of lumped into it. That's true. And and a lot of people thought we were Bad Time already, um, or they would ask us that. Like, we got asked if we were doing the Bad Time Records tour and stuff like that. And we're like, oh, we're actually not on Bad Time. Well, after we knew that we were going to put the album out, we just have to be like, no, nah, we're not on it. And um, yeah, the community has been so sweet. Like, we our first tour after the pandemic even like it's a big happy family like even outside of bad time uh we would go play places like brit and tim reached out like we didn't even ask they were like hey come crash at our place when you're in philly like uh joe and stiffy from the best of the worst were like hey yeah come crash at our place when you're coming through jersey um and just tons of stuff like that and people mutually hyping each other stuck lucky is one of our favorites and like they we're stoked to co-headline that tour with us and go to places we had never played and didn't know what to expect, but they've all been so good. Yeah. So Afterglow comes out, you release Afterglow, Afterglow Simulator. Yeah. And uh, then the Afterthought, I think, comes out after that, right? Yeah. Yeah. Th- those are both Kickstarter perks and whether or not they were good ideas up in the air. I, the 8-bit version, especially, I've had a couple people tell me that was the first thing they heard from us and they thought that was our like big new release and they were confused as to why there was no lyrics and stuff like that on it. <laughs> oh, this is an eight bit band. Okay. Yeah. And in that sense, they were kind of confused. They were like, I don't get the hype. It's, it's all right. It's weird. It's a weird <laughs> release into the world. <laughs> Who in the band uh, makes the eight bit songs? Uh, me. It's you. Okay. Yeah. That was, that was a good way. I released compilations of eight bit covers of bands for three years in a row. And it was, in my mind, a good way to bridge the gap in between shows, kind of show some love to bands that we like. Um, and then also, you know, I'm big into nature and biology and stuff, and I would try to sell these compilations and donate the money to the Nature Conservancy each year. Uh, and I did that for three years. Um, yeah, so that's out there, too. I think it's on Bandcamp as Ska Simulator, if you look that up. it's um, I did an Omnigon song on there as well. and You sure did. One, yeah. that, one that Aaron Carnes played drums on. Oh shit! I covered an indefensive ska song. <laughs> Aaron had completely forgotten that part. Oh yeah, no, I, I know that I played drums for you. I just don't remember what the name of the songs. So now I know. Now it's burned in my brain. It's the one that uh, <laughs> yeah. the one that uh, Flying Raccoon Suit did for the eight bit. The one that Andrew covered. The afterthought though that was inspired by your quarantine sessions that you guys were doing. Yeah, and actually Jessica and I had done. Um, there's a cover of Joystick's Worm Food on there. Uh, we had recorded a version in my living room and just posted it on Facebook where uh, I used the drum machine from my organ and uh, just played a guitar loop. And she sang that over it. And Clay and Duck were like, oh, that's your song. You got to go record that now. And yeah, some other stuff we had done acoustic. Uh... Yeah, Curly's a brilliant guitar player, too. So we were able to show him off that way. And Jessica, uh, <laughs> Jessica. Wow. <laughs> she wanted a Lord-esque like synth pop song. So we through one of those on there yeah an attempt was made i mean you know no it's great and then the the folk songs because she and i had done a lot of that 
Yeah, I, I, I'm like a huge Mazzy Star fan, so I was trying to, you know, it, it, I don't know, it, Afterthought kind of gives me like a, a Mazzy Star vibe, so I, I like that about it. Yeah, I, I, I always wish more people had heard that little EP, because it was fulfilling a Kickstarter backer pledge thing, like if we had hit a certain amount, but there's some good stuff on there that I think more people should hear. Brandon, who's also a brilliant guitarist and songwriter in his own right, he does a finger-picked version of Toss and Turn with Jessica, where they um, they have duo vocals, but he's finger-picking the melody line with the bass line and the guitar part at the same time. That's, there's some good stuff on there. Yeah, his his brain is is incredible to me. Like he tries to explain things to me musically, and 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 when he explains it, it makes sense. When he picks it apart, and then and then he's playing it, I'm like, ah, my brain hurts. <laughs> he's such a a brilliant mind. He he also has perfect pitch. He'll he'll correct me and say perfect relative pitch. But if uh his party trick, like you can ask him to sing a C sharp, and he can sing it, or ask him any note, he'll know if something's like. 10 cents sharp or flat just really brilliant there there was one year we thought it was so funny spotify <laughs> does their end of year playlists and his most listened to song of the year was the note e just <laughs> stuff like that the stuff you guys did during quarantine i think was really good content like you did the band, full band doing songs like uh tell another one i think is probably my favorite but thank you the the quality of the song and the video, it's all like very well put together. Is this just, this is just something to do with, um, I don't know. Is it curly? Because you said he's a Twitch streamer able to kind of do this stuff in a, in a, in a very, in a very professional way. It, it's kind of both. Um, the quarantine ones I actually did the videos for because one of my goals during quarantine, was like, okay, I have no excuse. Let me see if I can pick up a new skill. So I did, the video editing for our, our play at home songs, but then Curly did the, the more intense videos, like our music video for toss and turn that was all shot green screen in his kitchen, but it looks like a little Pixar movie. Like it's so good. Having him is such an asset. I Like if either me, him or Jessica wasn't in this project, I don't think it would work because like the three of us do most things together. And uh, yeah, I don't think it would work otherwise. Yeah, we all definitely work together really well. Because, I mean, we've all known each other since we were, like, children. I mean. Yeah, for for real. Okay, so at the end of Red Herring, you can hear an electronic keypad, keypad on your front door. <laughs> Let's hear the story. That is that Aaron Carnes research right there. Uh, yeah, that's... So we record all of our music either at my house or at Curly's house. And uh, I was getting home from work to my house and Curly had already been at my house. He was just finishing recording the drum track uh, as I'm punching the little keypad to get in my front door. So he thought it was charming and left it in and kind of in a similar sense on the song, eat the world on this album. Uh, I have this theremin that I've been playing around with just as a way to make cool sounds and cool textures for songs, but I, they're really expensive. So I bought the shittiest theremin I could find online and it literally doesn't, there's no volume switch. Like if it's on, it's playing something. So uh, at the end of eat the world, you hear me pull my hand out of range and then you hear me turn it off so that it'll stop making noise. So you, there's a little click at the end of eat the world, just because the theremin is so hard to work with, unless you buy like an extra wah or volume pedal or something like if it's turned on, it's playing some note. Nice. 
So these are little little fragments uh, for people who uh, like to listen to your music with headphones while high. Exactly. There, <laughs> there's a lot of texturing in there. Like people can go back and listen for those dolphin noises in Hive Mind, or I think she was Jessica. Didn't you shout Hive Mind in the Bart Simpson voice back in there? Oh, I absolutely did. I did all kinds of weird shit in that one. Yeah, tons of cool texturing stuff to listen for. Okay, so um, you toured with Joystick this year. This is the same tour, uh, the Canada tour, as well as U.S., or is that a different tour? It was the same. Yeah, Midwest, uh, U.S., and then down through the Northeast, yeah. So while you were in the Midwest, you were referring to it as your pizza tour because you were experiencing some of the delightful ways pizza (laughs) is made in the Midwest. Yeah. Would you like to to illuminate us on any of these pizza experiences you had? So... Uh, I think Hans Gruber even took it a step further on their tour. And a lot of it, like, they posted, I think I made both of you look at this, but the Altoona pizza from Pennsylvania. That absolute yeah. nightmare toast with American cheese on top. What is yeah, that? Yeah, that looks disgusting. Cold with chocolate milk. Uh, oh, God. I think the the biggest or the most surprising one, we didn't do anything too, like, wacky, but uh, Gary uh, and Defensive Scott, Patreon member, uh brought us this uh, pizza in Connecticut uh, where it's mashed potatoes on pizza. And we posted about it being like, okay, this is the Connecticut thing. Uh, We've had it each time we've been up there. And a lot of people from Connecticut were like, wait, no, it's not. And it became this whole discussion. Like people would have to show their receipts like, oh yeah, all these places in New Haven make mashed potato pizza. (laughs) I I think that was the big one. Have either of you had mashed potato pizza? Hell no. (laughs) Have you had mac and cheese pizza? No, but that actually sounds okay. It slaps. <laughs> How is mashed potato pizza? I like it hot. Cold, uh, it doesn't hold up as well as some other pizzas. Jessica, what about you? I I, I didn't try it. Okay. Yeah, I, I, it sounds scary to me. Like, I mean, if you, I'll eat them separate, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, so when you went into Toronto, you... Uh... You guys tracked down the building where Rush's Moving Pictures album cover was taken? I wish I could have gone to that. Wow. Yeah, we did. Um, Guillermo and Curly found it. Uh, They found it was like, what, a mile or two away from the venue. And Curly is just the biggest Rush fan. So they made it there and back before we played. They walked a long time. Yeah, and we found out about it because of a record store owner, which everybody in that city was so nice. Like they uh the record store owner told curly about it and he was giving him and guillermo some free records with their purchases i think jessica wasn't somebody giving you and eric free stuff at like the weed store up there yeah the, the lady at the, the owned the, the canadian weed store yeah she just gave me i mean like fifty thousand stickers beanies just hand cream i mean she gave me like a bag of stuff and she was like yeah, they were just giving me more and more stuff and just like acting like we've known each other forever. It was it was an experience. Everybody was so sweet up there. And yeah, we were just trying any foods that might be novel to the area. So like a bunch of poutine and ketchup chips and stuff like that. But it, it was great. That was most of our first times being out of the country. I want to talk a little bit more about Moonflower. Um, when you guys were being interviewed for Afterglow, you talked about the themes of the record being mental health, environmentalism, you know, anti-Trump, xenophobia. Well, how would you describe the themes of this new record? Kind of, kind of in a similar vein. I, I think uh, 
long shot and sunflower are sort of two sides of the same coin same coin like looking forward with either dread or hope which is why we sort of reference both in our intro song like trying to be a, a little concepty about it and stuff just to set it up as like here's kind of what's in store for the album and we touch on other things i mean it's sort of the anxieties that come with aging and jessica can probably speak to that yeah definitely um you know you hit 30 and you feel like i guess everything's changing and it feels like a, a race against time a little bit um not i wouldn't not the biological clock you know not like that just more so like i have i have i lived enough you know and um it's kind of like you don't know what you have left and it kind of touches on that a little bit i just want to interject and say that um a couple days ago i sent adam a photo of a billboard sign i saw in sacramento that says it was for a senior center and it says come discover the joys of life after 50 and um (laughs) i'm and i'm 48 and adam how are you 47 46 okay anyways i just wanted to talk about the anxieties uh, uh let's talk about the anxieties of uh, almost being 50 so basically aaron and i are gonna roll out to these classes <laughs> I, w- I would love to see that you should record some content there <laughs> please, please do anyways i'm sorry to interject proceed uh, jessica wrote um one of my favorite collaborations on this one was witch's streak yeah witch's streak um that one okay i went I used to go to this hairstylist, um, not the nicest person. Um, and she basically, she was like putting out my silver hair. She was like, Oh, look at your witch's streak. It's like really pronounced. And I'm like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for, you know, you keep talking about this. (laughs) And, and, um, I was, it kind of just got me thinking, you know, um, you know, yeah, I'm definitely, I'm not young, you know? And, uh, it's hard to talk about this, I guess, um, into in words that make sense <laughs> at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you did great though. Like, definitely when when she brought that idea uh, to the table, like witch's streak and sort of, you know, aging from a, a woman's point of view, we're like, that's that's all you. And and she brought it on that song, and I love that one a lot. That one is one of the more collaborative ones. Like, Brandon wrote the main melody. I wrote the bridge. Like, uh. Clay wrote his baseline. Jessica wrote the lyrics. Uh, that one came together super well, and that's that's more of an an album song for sure because it's not the most accessible thing, and we we understand that about some some of our songs. So we're we tried to do this album differently in that putting the poppier stuff as singles and hoping people stay around for the full album because with Afterglow we picked some of our favorites for the singles and then. The poppier stuff like Red Herring and Static Home ended up being people's favorite songs off the album. And we picked neither as singles. And we were like, oh, would would those have gotten like a little more traction if we had boosted them? Or so we're trying it the opposite way this time and gonna see how that goes. Yeah, I like I really like how there's some pretty pretty out there songs on this record, like in a good way, just some of the the genres that you're playing with and just some of the structuring of it. Like I do feel like this album goes a little further than afterglow. Thank you. And yeah, just calling back to earlier, we, we hope it is like, yeah, from a genuine way. Cause it's all drawing from things we've done for like most of our lives, as far as like the, the brass bands or the metal or the indie rock influences. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We all definitely brought more of ourselves into it. I, I think I could say. All right. So I want to talk a little bit about, uh, Amneville Enado. 
<laughs> which is a movie. Oh my that, god, Amityville. This is how is how you say it, Amityville Anato. The Amityville name. So Duck from Joystick. This is a movie that he made, and yeah. you guys have cameos in it. I don't know what what exactly is your participation in this film, or is that something that can be discussed? Uh, well, Jess is the one who has the speaking role. Oh. Yeah, I don't know if I can talk about it, actually. Yeah. Did you sign an NDA? <laughs> to, be, to, be, to be honest with you, I don't remember much about that night. <laughs> this is all this is all promotion, <laughs> I'm sure, you know, unless there's some yeah. like, you know, secret sauce being revealed. The rest of us just die. I think uh Well, I <laughs> I I'll, I guess I'll just say it. I mean, it's not like a big thing. I mean, my part. <laughs> I was just like a, I was just the the merch girl for for the uh, the the band and the movie. Um, I was like the merch girl that was really really high behind the table, just trying to sell weed to people. Nice, yeah. And uh, Jeff, who does a lot of the joystick music videos, is the director of that movie, and he directed our music video for Eat the World. So while he was at my house doing the Eat the World music video, uh, he had it. They were done filming, but he had his camera with him, and he was like. Hey, I'm going to need a few of you to die on film while I'm here today. So we yeah, set up ladders outdoors and two people with leaf blowers were shooting the person. And yeah, made that'll probably be like one second each of us dying throughout the film. But it's going to be <laughs> very up Ducks Alley. I'm excited. Do you know any other Scott people that are in this movie? Uh, Greg from Bad Operation is in it. Um. I'm trying to think there there's a Brooklyn vegan article that spells them all out. Uh, several joystick members are in it. Mickey. and Well, yeah, Clay. Clay is the uh, the main uh, one of the main characters. He's a police officer named Officer Lipschitz. <laughs> Very duck. Very duck. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. Well, all right. So the status of the movie then at this point is it's all been filmed, but um, they're raising money to get it distributed or edited or something like that yeah the indiegogo uh wrapped up a couple weeks ago so yeah they're in post-production now doing all the editing and uh the music and stuff like that and they were throwing around some ideas of different songs from bands in the scene like in the soundtrack as well so he talked about using an frs song so i mean the soundtrack will be interesting to see too all righty well i think it'd be a good time to go behind the curtain and uh, where where we will be hearing the Lois Griffin voice. (laughs) Don't go anywhere. If you want to hear the rest of this conversation, head over to our Patreon. Thank you for listening to In Defense of Scott. Please rate and review this podcast and tell a friend. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at In Defense of Scott. Pick up Aaron's book, In Defense of Ska, at your local bookstore or online. This podcast is edited by Chris Reeves of Ska Punk International. This is your co-host, Adam Davis of Omnigon, leaving you by saying Ska now more than ever. Do you like the band name Flying Raccoon Suit? Sure. You know, I was, I, I feel bad because at one point, I was like, if you guys are ever going to change your band name, next record's the time to do it. Uh huh. I think I offended them. I can't change it now. Can't change it now. Now, now you're totally too late. stuck with it. Now that you put out a great album.
Now you're stuck with it. That's fine. It's a good band name. It's fine. Now behind the behind the curtain, Patreon exclusive, we have quite a delight. What do we have back there, Aaron? Okay. Jessica gives us her Lois Griffin impression. <laughs> Spoiler, it's really good. Yeah, it's it's definitely worth the five dollars price of admission. So head over to our Patreon, sign up for it. Lots of other good goodies back there. You've got different tiers. You can get some cool indefensive cost swag. You'll be supporting this show that you like so much. So please head on over and do that. We'll see you soon. All righty. Bye-bye. Hey, everybody. It's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian. And we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Hey, everybody. It's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian. And we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks.